Well, here we are, friends, in Kristen Hangy's apartment in New York City, and I have all sorts of questions for Kristen because of recent conversations we've had. I was like, oh, that's a Robcast episode, and you... I have a podcast called <laughs> Let's Play, the Create Podcast, and we were having a conversation, and you said it's all about playing, and I said, I want to record this conversation. You were saying so many things that felt like the inside of my spirit. I felt like something deep inside of me was being addressed from your soul, and I was like, this is so good, I feel like someone should hear this. <laughs> and I had been asking those questions about you when doing the past month, mm -hmm. and I was thinking, oh, I think people would find this fascinating, because it was about your particular work, but, but once again, everything's about everything. Right. It was about that. So um, for all of you listening, so we decided to combine them and interview each other and then release it to both of our prospective worlds of friends. Who probably all know each other anyway. Let's I know. <laughs> okay, so here's my question. I want to start in. Can okay. I just go ahead? You just spent the past month in Virginia doing a musical. So somebody brings you in, director. Tony-nominated Broadway musical director Kristen Hange goes to Virginia because a script has been written, a songbook. They cast it. Uh, producers found investors, found a theater... And that's how, like, a musical starts. Generally not Broadway. It starts in a developmental theater somewhere else. Exactly right. So when you fly in, how many weeks? The cast have never met. The songs haven't been sung. Like, you come in, and how many weeks do you have before opening night? Well, in this particular situation, this production had been established a year prior with a lot of the regional theaters in the country. They programmed their season a year in advance. So what happened was this was on the calendar, and then all of a sudden, Maddie Corman's play, Accidentally Brave, got picked up. And there was a window to produce it in, and it was going to overlap Atlantis by two weeks. So what I did was I have this amazing associate director, and I sent her in for the first two weeks of Atlantis to stage it. And then I came in after the first two weeks, and it was very exciting for me because, one, I trust MK with my entire life. Shout out to MK. Yeah, she's a genius. But to be able to see your show have a rough structure on it, it allowed the dramaturg in me to go, all right. It's Dramaturg. Yes. T-U-R-G, dramaturg. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. What's the breakdown of that word? It's, I, I call it like a story doctor. Oh, got it. Okay. So not only am I a director, but I also have this other uh, part of my career as a, as yes. a uh, story doctor. And um, to look at, the, at what's happening in the arc of the narrative and see what is working and what is not and what the, st what the story is about. So you can work on a musical, a play for a year and think you know what it's about. But once you see it staged, it starts to tell you. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you show up in Virginia, and how many weeks until opening night? So in that situation, it was quick, and I think I had three weeks oh. once I got there. Okay, so we have actors, mm -hmm. uh, the musicians, mm -hmm. lighting, costumes, like blocking, yep. staging, the producers, the theater itself. Like, there are all of these different dimensions that you have your hands on at some level. Yeah, and I've been working on it for a year. So I've been working with the composers and the writers a long time before I got there. And I started, and I hired all the designers and had been working with them since October, November. So the set had been already been designed. The costumes had been designed. I'd been talking with the lighting designer. We'd been designing looks. Uh, the prop person had been sending me sketches. So I've done a lot of the conceptual work before mm -hmm. my feet even get on the ground. I cast it with actors in New York and in Virginia. So I knew what I was getting myself into. So I have a vision in my head. I have, um, I, I can close my eyes. I can see what it looks like. I can see how it moves. I know what you it is. You can picture this, like a particular mm -hmm. song. Mm -hmm. Can you can picture yes. where everybody is on the stage? Mm -hmm. You can and then the next scene after that, you can actually play like a replay yep. of, of like a sports game. True story. When I was a little girl, 
I used to play my Fisher Price uh, record player and lay on my bed and imagine in my head what the songs look like as Dory. Wow. Yeah. So you then, the first day you're in Virginia, the musical's called Atlantis. It's never been performed before. <laughs> no. You see some rough version of it. Mm-hmm. And when you see the first version of it, and then you know how soon the public is going to buy tickets and see this, do you, is there like a intensity? Is it like urgency? Is it panic? Is it? Well, this is why I love directing is because for me, it's a spiritual practice. There is all the intensity in the outer world. And I like to go, how calm can I be on the internal world? There are people with needs and anxieties and demands. There's all these cogs happening in all these different departments. Everyone needs answers. And I love to drop into this place where I am confident of where it is we're going and that we can get there and then hold that vision consistently every day. It's my favorite part. Because if you wobble, lots of people Mm -hmm. wobble. That's right. The whole production so your job is to come in to this space with all these different people and be like this grounded center that everything sort of orbits around. Yes. The first time you see it, are you, do you have a pen and paper? Mm-hmm. I mean, are you like just yep. furiously doing notes? Exactly right. Are there things, on this one in particular, were there things you're like, that is, does not work? It was more like, oh, that's great. That's great. That's nailing it. Oh, that's what the play is about. Oh, that scene doesn't work because now I know what this character relationship needs to be. And so afterwards, it was more like I made so many discoveries. Now I understand what is at the root of this character and this character. So let's dive into that. So I got really excited. What happened for me is I got super enthusiastic because you're able to identify, okay, th- did the person who wrote the musical, <laughs> did, did they have those characters' journeys built into the script? Would they have said the same thing? I think, or would you be seeing things they didn't see? I think as it became, became, it became staged, it crystallized. And as I started to say these things out loud, he was nodding, yes, yes, yes. You're helping him discover what he wrote. We're all discovering it together. I like to believe that a musical already exists, yeah. and it is inside of us, and all of us have to say our truth out loud uh, in order to discover what it wants to be. It, it beca- it's, it, we're creating the space through which it can come into form. There's like, a, there's like a universal mother thing that you do. I'm sure these people have told you this a hundred times. Yeah where you like wrap your arms around a whole thing and just basically announce to everybody, we're going to make this, we're going to give birth to this, it's going to be fine, in fact, you're actually going to enjoy it. Yes. Because I assume now you have local Virginia actors interacting with Broadway actors. So that's just, I mean, it's the same world, but it's also different worlds. Mm -hmm. And I assume over the course of all the things you've done, you have people who don't know if they're up to it, mm-hmm. people who are way more up to it in their minds than maybe they are. Do you feel all those energies of, of where people are at? Yes. Can I- you see somebody on stage singing, dancing, acting, and can you read their interiors? Like what, what they're feeling, thinking? Often. Often. Really? Yeah. You can always tell... Um, who is getting in their head, who is feeling really free and playful, who is feeling unseen. It's like having a large family. And Feeling unseen, meaning? Mm, maybe you can tell who's feeling shy or inhibited. You can just start to feel these things. And there are, there are often times where maybe one person is really uh, feeling anxious or irritable. Something's coming up for them. Um, and I'll often, like, uh, they'll, become, they'll become adopted by, say, my associate director. And I'll say, can you just befriend that person and show them so much love? 
but she's so intuitive and smart and on it and generous of heart that she actually is like 10 steps ahead of me and has already created that relationship because she felt it. She's actually, she's actually more intuitive and more ins- sensitive than I am. Really? Oh, yeah. She's a genius. So you're sitting out in the seventh row or whatever, mm-hmm. watching some scene be rehearsed. Mm-hmm. You have the story and whether the story's moving forward. You have, is everybody wearing the right thing, moving in relation to each other. But then there's this whole other like playing field of the actors themselves interacting with each other and their own selves that you're also reading. Right. Is it ever overwhelming, all these moving parts? Or for you, it just all, you just hold it all? Well, I feel like you and I were talking about this the other day. The more and more I do it, the more I realize my job is to do less, is to hold space and to empower other people. I feel like I do notice that my job is to get my small self out of the way and to let spirit move through me. Small self. Yeah. I like that. My egotistical self that... Like any part of me that ever wants to be in charge, that wants to have the answers, that wants to be the knower has to get out of the way so that I can sit there empty. I have to be the empty space that shows up, that holds that the answer is already there. And I can notice when I get in, when I really show up and allow flow to happen, man, things work like so beautifully. And I can watch myself when I get out of that. I'm like, oh, uh, Someone today bought someone's anxiousness. Oh, that's cute, Kristen. <laughs> you know there isn't any. You can drop that story. Or, oh, someone today feels like she needs to fix that scene. Hmm, can we drop that? The answer's already there. So it becomes a practice I get to do with myself. Uh, but I know that the show gets better the emptier I come to it. As a, so, Because there's a part, the small self wants to pick it up. Mm-hmm grab hold of it, white-knuckle it, put it on our shoulders, and it's up to me to take the whole thing energetically and just, I guess I'm the one who has to carry this up the mountain. So you have all of these mantras, tools, phrases, practices. This is not mine to carry up the mountain. Yeah, I just show up and I'm available. And I wait for an instinct. But I got to get out of the way and let spirit do what it wants to do here. It has an idea. It knows what it's doing. This musical, Atlantis, having its debut performances in, in Virginia, it knows what it is. Yes. And it is going to arise. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting thing I know about all my projects. It's spirit talking to me about curriculum in my own life. So this Wait, curriculum. Yeah. Like anything that like Ramdas would talk about, like whatever comes up, right? It's grist for the mill. Whatever yes. is come is here, it's here to teach us, yep. to inform us. Yep. Everyone is your teacher. Everyone is your teacher. So my shows are my teacher. So I'm trying to listen to them to hear what life is trying to tell me. So this show, Atlantis, is about a girl realizing that she has it within her to be a true leader and to face her fears of saying the truth out loud, to own her greatness, to truly lead, because she knows. And I've got, as I sit there and mm-hmm. I hear the story, I realize it's working on me. And, that, and so I always trust that whatever project is in my life is in my life because it's teaching me something. And so the mistake would be being like, well, listen, show, I know the right answers for you. No, you know the right answers for me. And I think that's true in business. And I think it's true uh, in relationship. I think it's true all over the place that it's about being willing to come to it and not know. But know that something is occurring. It's the right thing to be occurring. But being willing to like live in the uncertainty of allowing it to reveal itself. Ah, that's just so totally inspiring. Oh, thank you. It's just so inspiring. Even the things we've done to watch you do what you do, 
is just okay. Just now, can I leap ahead? Well, can oh. I can I start asking you questions? Hold <laughs> oh, on, I feel like you asked I, me like ten. I almost got you into the next round of my round. Okay, go ahead. Okay, yep. it's your round. Rob Bell. <laughs> I want to talk to you about your leading edge of growth at the moment. Okay. And that the role that stillness and listening has played in your current leading edge of growth. Oh yeah. Well, excellent callback because you were on the Robcast a while ago, a year or two at least, um, and you and Natalie, and one of the things we talked about was a rhythm of, of listening and then acting, and I had never thought of that way like as an infinity loop where you listen for what's the next right step. And then you take it, and that will bring with it all that it brings with it. And then you move back into the stillness and the listening. And that all stillness without action leaves a person stunted, uh, leaves a person immobilized. And all action without listening, you end up burning up endless energy running in circles. Um, and I, oh my word. I, I spend <laughs> so much more time, a hundred times more time, whatever, in stillness now and end up making way more than I used to, which I, is completely baffling to me. But, but you were one of the first people to put some of that into language for me. Whereas before I would just sit down and start typing or just sit down and like muscle it into creation and not emptying the self and just listening. What does this want to be? And trusting it'll tell me. So everything just takes way, way less. Uh, I don't know if the word energy is the right word than it used to. Yeah. Huge, huge new spaces for me in that. Do you feel like you have relationships with the creative projects that come through you? Absolutely. I talk to them. I, as opposed to, there is this thing I gotta make and I'm just gonna throw myself into it and make it. It's much more of like a give and take dance. What are you? What do you want to be? What is your shape, form, color, texture? Um, even something as basic as, oh, I thought that was... Uh, a Robcast episode. Actually, that's something else. That's grown. That could be this. Even though sort of uh, challenging all the assumptions about certain ideas. Like, well, that's obviously, maybe it's not. Oh, interesting. Let's follow it. See what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's much, much more of like a play and a listening and a dance than it used to be. So then it just becomes so much more... Uh, it's like you're holding it loosely, but you're also even more present in it. Yeah, I notice that on stage now, mm -hmm. way more. Um, as opposed to there's this thing I'm going to try and... There's this experience I'm going to try and give these people. It's now much more like on tour, we're going to have an experience. I may be up front with a microphone, but we're going to have an experience. Even like, well, how was the crowd? Oh, we were great. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I even lost a, a lot of the boundaries have dissolved. Um, how did I do? How did we do? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love thinking of it as a we and not an Absolutely. I. Absolutely. Uh, NDRE says before she writes a song, she will say a prayer that, so that she can be a vessel of it. And Stephen Pressfield, the writer, talks about the same thing in a prayer mm -hmm. he says before he writes. And I heard you say on a recent Robcast how you say a, a prayer of sorts, a, a summoning or an incantation before you go on stage. Um, I was oh, yeah. When I, I, stand, I go, go, stand behind the, uh, go stand behind the curtain and I raise my hands as high as I can. I try to open my body up as much as possible. Like, I am, I am here so that we can all experience something. So here we go. Yeah, it's like a giant full, but it's a full-bodied prayer. 
When did you start that practice? Be- also, I should say, um, it, the, the mystery is born in bodies. So, so physicality, materiality, stuff, thingness is not something to be escaped from into higher realms of squishy spiritualness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The whole thing is born in matter. Like matter matters. So for a lot of people, spirituality is ascension, escape, liberation. Get me out of this body. Correct? Yes. Get me out of all this. I don't want to have to pay bills. I don't want to have to traffic, all this stuff. Just get me up. Even bodies that are decaying because we're getting older. So for a lot of people, it's like, no, no, no. The higher things, even those, think about it. They lifted their prayers up. Um, you know what I mean? Is all rooted in some form of liberation from physicality. But I just begin with no. The, the divine, the magic spirit, the mystery of the whole thing, the body is where it happens. Do you know that Wine, is- sex, soil, music tables in your apartment where we're talking like this is the you know what i mean but the magic is here yeah yeah so that's all that's all um so like you think about all of the times throughout the day when somebody's like oh my word i'm in another meeting i'm changing another diaper i'm stuck in traffic again but if you can be no the the bodies this is where the thing happens i'm telling you it changes everything that just a, changes everything. That's why I think presence becomes so important <laughs> because the magic is in this moment. Absolutely. And so if you're not in this moment, you miss that there's magic that wants to occur Absolutely. right here. Mm-hmm. I love, I live to encourage other people to make their things. Mm-hmm. I love to encourage people to make their movies or do their theater, make your thing because it's in the doing of it, you actually experience the divine supporting you. Absolutely. And I don't think anything has grown my faith more than making things. Absolutely. By the way, in, um, in the Jesus tradition I come out of, incarnation, the divine taking on flesh and blood, sort of this big theological idea was always the union of the divine and the human, that you as a human being, you're this mysterious cocktail of spirit and soul and body and mind and bones. You're all of this. So it's not something over there. So then you even think about just your life at the deepest levels. Any voice that tells you the action is somewhere else is never going to take you in to the fullness of joy and vitality. It will always be, there's obviously something right here. And, um, so please help me see it, uh, because that's the thing. <laughs> it's right here. Absolutely. Give me eyes to yeah, see it. Yeah, yeah. It's like some of these, they're so, I call it super duh. It's my category of truth. Super duh, because there's duh. The sky is blue. You know, eating tacos makes you a better person. Those are just duhs. Like, don't even argue about those truths. Super duh is my category of truth that's so obvious that it gets missed. <laughs> It's so in front of you that you don't see it. That's one of my jobs is to announce super duh. You're here and you're breathing. And you can just skip right over that one. Or you can. Are you with me on that? I love that. Super duh is the thing that that is so completely basic and obvious that everybody missed it. You're on a floating green and blue ball hurtling through space at 67,000 miles an hour. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I do. I came into rehearsal the other day, and I was like, you guys, we get to make a yes, thing. right, right, We right. get to make a right, thing right, to get right. today. We get to play, and we're getting paid for it. What yes, do you want to scream yes. with joy? Yes, and most moments in life of satisfaction and joy are when you discovered something that if you were to give it language, you would almost be embarrassed at how obvious it is. Like if you're a parent, we made human beings. <laughs> you know what I mean? Most of the rescue from the doldrums and just ministrivia of life is from rediscovering something that if you say it out loud, you would feel like a small child, and that's exactly the point. <laughs> oh. And you know, this, this is why all of the people that we most love and respect who seem to have somehow gotten it, whatever it is, always are the ones who have some sort of childlike wonder and awe. They, they seem to have gone 
back, which then took them forward. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I think part of my own maturation process has been about deeply embracing my childlike self because she is the one that makes it all happen. She yes. is where the creativity is and the laughter and the humor and yeah. the sensitivity. Like, girl, you're the one, you're the one bringing the money in. She like, knew. She knew. She knew. And you think about how she, she was pre... There are lots of developmental stages that were absolutely necessary for you to be the wonderful Kristen Hanging you are, and yet she was pre a lot of that, and that a lot of art is pre-verbal. It speaks to a place deeper within you. It speaks to the place before you develop the ability to roll your eyes. Um, it speaks to something more central to you before you... Um, well, you know that like you play a song that you really like for somebody, like, oh, I want to hear this new song. And then they're like, oh, interesting. It sounds like Morrissey meets Florida Georgia Line or whatever, which would be a weird combo. Um, but you see them already, the first response they have is what it sounds like to them. And a part of you is just like, I didn't play it for you so that you could try and figure out what else that it reminds. I didn't play it so, you, so that your mind could go on a labeling, categorizing field trip. <laughs> I played it for you so that you just feel it and have the experience. For the experience. So your earlier Kristen, who is later Kristen as well, she knew a number of things. And there were a number of other wonderful capacities she's developed that, that, that she hadn't also learned that they could also get in the way. Mm-hmm. That's right. She was just here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just here to play. <laughs> just told the truth. Just said, yes. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> That's so much fun to talk about. Okay, it's my round now. If I may say, if I may request yes. a round. So you, so then you had opening night in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Is there the couple of nights up to the opening of Atlantis, the musical directed by Kristen Hange? Is it get more tense because there's last minute things? You hit a thing called previews in uh, a musical process, which where is writers press coming. Well, this is before press comes, okay. and I did it with Maddie's show as well, where you are rehearsing during the day and seeing the show at night, and it's the most valuable thing. And I always say to our preview audience, thank you for being here, because I don't know what it is until you're here. Oh, so you come out before a preview, mm -hmm. and you talk, introduce yourself as a yeah. director, and mm -hmm. then tell them. Do you have like a set speech? I have a, some similar things I say. Uh, and these people... Got free tickets. No, a lot of them paid. You, they, you, you, you charge for previews. <laughs> Come see us in process. And do you have certain things you say to a preview audience, no matter what production it is? Yeah, often you'll tell them, we're in previews. We made changes today. We're still working out things. We may have to stop at, at some point. This is really still a rehearsal that you are seeing. And... From what we see tonight, your contribution to it, it will inform where we go. So know that you are like part of the alchemy of what we learned tonight. So thank you for being of service. Where do you sit during preview shows? Usually in the back, cause, so I can feel the audience. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Center back? So, center back or uh, side center back. Yeah. And you're, watch, you're watching your feeling. Yeah, I'm, I'm in, trying to intuitively feel if the, it, when they're with me when they're not with me, when they're confused, when they're having a great time. This is really interesting. A thing would happen in, with Rock of Ages uh, that I directed. For six we, years. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I, Rock of Ages ran well, for Broadway in six years, it, Yeah, it did. Um, and I also was developing it for five years before then. So I spent a lot of time in a lot of productions. Figuring Rock out. of Ages was 11 years of your life at some level. Yeah, I mean, it's still it's about to, to reopen off-Broadway, and then they're doing another uh, production in Los Angeles later this year. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. But it'll be the 18th and 19th production of that show I've directed. So this show, you'll, you'll be at 20 years with this show oh, at yeah. some point. They in become future. like my children, and interestingly enough, the first thing that ever broke my career was this musical called Bear, which went on uh, to ha be licensed all over the world. And just when I was down in Virginia, these kids, college kids came up to me, and they said, um, 
we just want you to know that like bear changed our life and Whoa. it's been with us our whole lives. And I realized that we did it for the first time in 2000. And I'm like, Oh, when they were born. Oh, so people really <laughs> have been with this show their whole <laughs> lives. There's, there's a whole population of people that like know this musical so deeply and it's impacted them, but that's not a rare occurrence with bear. Um, and I think of interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting when you make something. I'm, I'm sure that happens with you and, and your books. Um, wow, that's amazing. So, um, oh, I got off topic. Oh, I was talking about the previews. Oh yeah, previews. Uh, so, what else do you say to them? I tell them. Well, I, I, sometimes I'll go in deeper a little bit, and I did in Virginia about the process of making something, and that making mistakes is important in learning. How, like what something is. Sometimes you have to learn what it is not. Mm -hmm. um, and You had to try it this way, this way, and this way to get to, oh, this is the way to do it. Yeah. And all of the previous iterations weren't mistakes. They were just how you had to get there. It was just teaching That's the you. route to get there, yeah. So I did five productions of Rock of Ages before we ever went to Broadway, and I often said, <laughs> I just directed it all the wrong ways first <laughs> until I got to the right ways. <laughs> Which is why I'm such a but, fan of like, don't give up, just keep going. That is such a universal truth about everything. Um, and that assumption from business to being a parent, where did you get the idea that you would nail this on the first try? No. And anybody who ever does their first song was a hit song spends the rest of their life in a sort of suspended agony because nothing ever measured up that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, that's just not the way it works. Oh, I have to go back. Um, when you're sitting there in previews and you're f Kristen Hange, mother of the earth, feeling an audience, how do you, when the musical loses people or it confuses them, how does that feel to you? How do you know? I just, I can feel it. I, I felt it actually with the opening number of Atlantis. I was like, Oh, they're confused. I can actually feel them. Uh, first, be confused. Then try to get information. Then start to be upset that they can't follow and then get disengaged. They start to back up. Oh, I can, they... I can watch their bodies lean back. Oh, no. So literally, mm -hmm. um, physically, you see mm -hmm. people lean back in their mm -hmm. chair. And so I went to the writer and I said, you know, you're so smart. This show is so great because you're so smart. But I think we need to give literal handholds to the audience because there's so many new terms that we are introducing in the world. Like Lord of the Rings, you know how there's almost its own lexicon, its yes. own language, or, or Harry Potter. We have to slowly define these terms for them. And it's going to feel, um, it might feel like we're being obvious, but they need it. So we went through and we just made everything as clear as possible. Like we were the enemy of vague in the opening number and it changed everything. And what happened was the audience laughed more. Be Becoming, being more straightforward and on the nose was funnier. It allowed them to relax because they got all the information they needed. And the rest of the, the act one was so much funnier. You gave that, me that great book about uh -huh. musicals. Yes. And the opening line has this great opening line about a musical begins, the crowd is in trouble and needs to be rescued. That's exactly right. You have to see it that way. What you think about and lots of events. If you think about lots of events as the audience is in trouble and the first thing is they need to be rescued. They want to Otherwise, know. what am I doing here? What, what's going on? Who is this? What's... Yeah, am I safe? Yes. <laughs> am I okay? Uh, oh, you can pick up confusion. What else... Um, you can, what else do you pick up? Well, this is what was, another I, obvious one. I think I was about to say this and I, I got excited that when all those productions of Rock of Ages all over the world, there was a certain sound the audience would make at this one point in the show that was particularly surprising and joyous. And I was like, how funny that it doesn't even matter what language the audience speaks. They make the same sound mm -hmm. when they're surprised yeah. and joyous. What is that, that universal yeah. thing? So yeah. you can tell when they're surprised. You can tell when they're having a good time. You can tell when they're riveted and they feel the dramatic tension. It's exciting. I mean, you must feel yeah. that, right? Here, here I am starting to ask you questions. Can you, <laughs> well, this last uh, 
talk that you've been giving, um, you had such a discovery over the first few nights of it. And then as it's... Oh, Introduction to Joy. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what you discovered as you did it? Oh, yeah. I'm looking for the soul of something. There's like a center, like a, a tender spot that you're looking for that the whole the show is an hour and 55 minutes on stage every tour is like this there's some tender place that the whole thing revolves around might be earlier in the two hours it might be later but i'm searching for it and i can do years of work on it same thing happens with the robcast i know exactly what you can outline it, can go over, craft it, um, and then you have to do it because it gets found ultimately in the giving of it. Something happens, and like the first, I did two preview shows of Introduction to Joy, and the first one, um, I couldn't, I didn't find it. But also, when you're going to be on stage for that long, there's just sheer retention. Do I even know all the ground I'm going to cover? So that your brain is spending time on what's next. Because I think there's like 80 or 90 of these pictures I've taken on my iPhone that's part of the show, and there's all the little things happening among them. So part of the time, you're just seeing if you can get, if you even know it, that. So it's like your brain is spending a bunch of energy going, what's next again? <laughs> Because you've just memorized two hours of stuff. Um, but even just one or... But on this one, the second night, in the middle, it was like getting hit by a lightning bolt. It was like, oh, this is the thing. I do this whole thing about the two halves of the heart. My experiences of witnessing drama... Uh, trauma and loss and betrayal up close to people and then my young family and how I could see this much suffering in the world and then how am I supposed to enjoy and love these people? How can these two things, how could you ever have joy when the world is the way it is? Um, but as soon as this, and I found myself touching my heart, like it's like these two things were in my heart sitting side by side, these two dimensions of life, these two experiences. And I don't know how to, they can't just sit this close to each other. Um, and, and actually, in the second preview show, I just started <laughs> just crying. I couldn't stop crying. It's like getting hit by a lightning bolt on stage. Oh, that's what this is. And the first night, the show was like a, an hour and 15 minutes, and I walked off thinking, there's another 35 minutes. I just, it's somewhere in there that I left that, that it's so short. There's something missing. And then the second night, oh, that's what it is. Oh. And instantly... It, everything sort of like, because if, let's say something happens in the second hour, then you sort of reverse engineer. Oh, so now if I know we're going to have this experience, I do this thing in the middle about my young boys and I show a picture of me and my young boys and like you can feel the room start to tilt. Um, but then you sort of, re then you go back and go, okay, so how do I start if I know this is where we're going to go? And then how does that affect the rest of the way to the end? Um, yeah, yeah. But like, uh, what, two nights ago in Birmingham, Alabama, at the end, I'm doing the benediction, and I see this older gentleman, like, third row center, and I see him take his glasses off and wipe his eyes. I'm like, oh, yeah. And it just, it's like, oh, this is the greatest I get to do this. <laughs> so you feel the room, too. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I, I All the way to the back rows. And I'm aware of somebody on their eye. I'm, I'm aware of somebody on their phone. There's a guy in Tulsa at Kane's Ballroom the other night. Polo shirt, back row, center aisle, right-hand side on his phone. And I will literally see somebody, and I will direct energy their way. We're going to just send some things that way so that he puts his phone down. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I am here to invite the whole room and I will I will be inviting you for the next two hours to join me in this experience we're having <laughs> I oh, love yeah. that yeah yeah I, I can be aware of pockets in the room I see specific people I'll see specific people last night in Charlotte 
uh, I'll see specific people and be overwhelmed with love for them. Young couple on the upper left balcony last night. Somebody in the booths on the side in Birmingham. Like I have specific people, I'll see them and I'll feel uh, deeply for them. I'm so glad they're here. I wonder what they're holding, as I'm doing the show. What brought them here? Who are they? What a mysterious phenomenon it is to be a human being. I hope that whatever they need to hear, they hear. I hope that what they need to feel, they need to feel. This is way beyond me. This is not something, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe a catalyst. I have a microphone I put together to show, but I just know there's something way more going on here that I am. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I love that. I love your ability <laughs> to tune in. You said something to me once that you said you trust that um, everyone will get what they need. Yes. And it doesn't even matter if you said it. Like some, something of that to absolutely. that nature. Absolutely. If the thing, when people say like, what do you want people to get out of it? If I say, I want them to learn X or I want them to know these three points. What I learned early on is it was really important for me to know what I'm trying to do because the more particular and specific I am about, about the art that I'm creating the more infinite and universal the effects were. And this happened to me right away early when I was giving sermons, as people would come up and start, they'd say what it meant to them, and I would think, that has nothing to do with what I was talking about. And I began to see the architectural feature of, I am going to give you everything I have in this specific gift, <laughs> the best I can muster up here knowing that what it's doing at some level is simply creating a space that spirit is going to speak to each person what they need to hear. That there's something way more going on here. And then it, it uh, and, and the really counterintuitive twist, like with Atlantis, um, or with what I'm doing, is the harder you, the more you give yourself to it to make it specifically something because one response people say like, well, then I just sort of relax and I just start talking and seeing what happens. No, I don't just start talking and see what happens. I give myself to the craft, to the trade. Like you're saying, you're sculpting it, you're shaping it, you're forming it. You know what I mean? Yes. The mystery is born in stuff. Like we're going to make that song tighter. We're going to have that actor add that line that the more you work to craft it and arrange it, and the more specific and particular you make it, the more you are at that same moment are creating more possibilities that people will see more things in it that you never could have imagined. Do you know the same thing is true in storytelling? The more specific you get with the theme, yes. then the more universal the story can be. Right. So you're telling that story, and the woman's name was Greta, and she was wearing a giant green sweater with a watermelon on it, and she's from Dubuque, Iowa, and drove a... Toyota Corolla, tell me, because somehow, right, the greatness of the story will be Greta was driving a toy, like those specifics. Yeah, he was wearing a sweater vest and Clark's Wallabies or whatever it is. Like, those are the details that somehow are what get us into how we're nothing like that person. Oh, yes, we are. Yeah. And the more particular is how you get the more universal. I have a lyricist friend who calls them crooked specifics. Oh, those are the little quirky. Yeah. He loved big time wrestling. She was a huge fan of Meryl Streep. Whatever it is, the little toss away comments about the person that uh, you're like, what does that have to do with anything? Everything. It for makes some them reason. real. Yes. Because when we describe the people we enjoy most, we're like, and they love pasta or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. We describe them by these quirky little particulars. There's a thing <laughs> that I do when I'm, when I'm uh, like story doctoring. Um, and I'm sure I got this from someone and have just been using it so long. Wait, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Story doctoring, for those keeping track at home, people, I've watched this, they hire you to come in to a play or a musical because something's wrong with the story. Uh-huh. You have a master's in this. Yes. And you come in, this is what I love, you literally are a doctor, you come in and tell people what's wrong with the story they're telling and how to make it. Okay, keep going, because Hope I just love pointing out that this is like a specific skill that you have. Hopefully I... A trained global expert in, I'm telling you, this is your story. Here are the... Like, 
It's <laughs> just such a great thing. Hopefully okay, go on. Sorry. I ask uh, intelligent questions that yes. gets them to find the solutions within yes. themselves. Yes, I didn't say it that well, but but it's true. <laughs> and I always tell people, you know, it's not about you figuring out your screenplay. Your screenplay came here to figure out you. <laughs> okay, sorry, I interrupted. You were saying about story doctoring. Well, one of the things that we do is in the beginning, do you do our main character, our protagonist, three Ps, which is their personal life, their professional life, and then their private life, what they do when no one else is around. And it's a combination of, of introducing three, those three things in the personal, beginning. Personal, professional, private. Mm -hmm. Personal would be... She was wearing a green sweater and drives a... That's just details about where the person's... Personal and who's in their life. Like, who's the closest person to them? Do they have a mate? Uh, are they... Are there, are there children? Just a picture of what their personal life is like. Um, professional life, what do they do? Do they do it well? Do, it, do they do it badly? Is she... Is it Marsha who hasn't been able to keep a job and is on her, you know, seventh temp job in a row? Or is it Doug who shows up an hour early and stays an hour late and has been there for 25 years? And then private. What they do when no one else is around. And that's where the juice, that's where the good stuff is. Do they, do they eat Oreos in their underwear and watch old movies and sing the songs out loud when no one else is around? What do they do? What do they do? And that reveals the soul of the character. Mm, and that's why... That's why so many stories just grab us because that's just fundamentally interesting. Right? Yeah, like pulls us in. <sighs> All right, Rob Bell, question for you. Okay. So the other day we're talking and you said there was a time in your career you knew that... Uh, career. Career. <laughs> Is that a funny I word? I never use that word. It's funny. <laughs> there was a time you <laughs> knew that you just wanted to to publish your books, to have your podcast, to do an, a thing, uh, to do your thing your way. Is that an okay way of saying it? Um, um, it started early on. Yep. And I didn't know how to articulate it. I just knew I was here to, to make these things. Yes. And that nothing else made sense. Everything else was just, but when I was, and it came from somewhere within and without. Mm -hmm. I would pick up pieces around me and in people, and then something would rise up within me, like, make this. And as long as I stayed true to that, what's the next? And as long as I just kept it as simple as what's the next thing to make, next sermon, next whatever, um, then it was very, it was like, oh, this is, yeah, it's just all made sense. You said that recently you've had this feeling, like an urging, um, that to let your voice become public in a new way. That it, at, at a time it made sense to like stop doing interviews. Oh, and yeah, to, yeah, yeah. And to kind of be a little more internal. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. And then there's been an urging to share in a deeper way or a different way. Yeah, yeah. And I've noticed they're, they're almost like waves or like a sine waves. There have been periods when I sensed um, stay home, stay in, and just make the next thing, and then periods of now go out and travel and share this. So sometimes it's just staying home versus traveling. Sometimes it's been um, public beyond just making the work and the people who know about it hear the next thing, or uh, the larger sort of public, like, okay, I'll go do interviews and go um, s sort of enter into the larger public discussion as opposed to just making the next thing and presenting it. Yeah, yeah, it's a, and there's been repeated... I remember in the year before my book Love Wins came out, um, there was a year there where I stayed home and wrote that book and preached sermon on Sundays and didn't do much else. It was just like a clear... And Kristen's... Um, tracking as well on all of this like I think I have this book I'm supposed to write and then I'll give sermons on Sundays and I'll just be and that's just be very very that's what the next chapters it generally unfolds in chapters the next chapter starts to reveal itself now this chapter I'll go do this or I'll yeah yeah can you feel that chapter intuitively yeah yeah it starts to uh it starts to get like almost like a shape to it and then 
it just gets more and more and more focus. And even starting to tour again a couple of years ago, oh yeah, that's the next thing, is to go back out and just go regularly out. And um, yeah, it's a very, it's a very, very interesting how it works. And there were a couple, the past couple of years, there was no book. So it was just, no, I'm not, I'm not writing. And then you start to get another idea and then you go back into something like that. Yeah, it's all, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that fascinating? I love yeah, it. It starts to reveal itself. And it's often interesting to me how Kristen feels the same thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you both mm-hmm. will get a knowing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. She's usually a step ahead, but she'll, she'll like check in and be like, yeah, that feels right. Yeah, we both do. We were constantly bouncing off. What's this chapter look like? What's this? Less, more, um, more private, more public, more travel, less travel, um, more interaction with people, um, more alone in silence, typing, crafting. You know what I mean? There's all these different like polarities, and they're not good or bad. They're just this season, that season, this period, that period. This is the next. Yeah, yeah, that's how it works. A powerful thing that you have shared has uh, been when you uh, when your podcast emerged and how you had the uh, the TV show that was lined up, so you carved out all this time for it. <laughs> speaking of chapters, and uh, and then when that didn't come to fruition yes. the way that one might have thought it was was going to, it actually cleared all the space for this new yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And I've had that happen so many times in my life. Oh. With, okay, well, I'm going to do this show for the next six months, and then I'm going to do this thing, and then that thing. And then sometimes, like last minute, like, oh, producers didn't raise the funding. Now there is a space. And a big space opens up. And then something new emerges. And, and so I feel like the gift of being a director is I have to, I've, I've had to learn how to trust uncertainty and that not knowing in life is always for me. And because you're I, watching you as your friend, you're all over the world with the picking these things up and giving them birth and then setting them down and moving. Even just basic calendar scheduling, airplanes, um, the, just watching how you hold it because you could be on that cruise ship <laughs> story doctoring next week. <laughs> Right? Yeah. Like I remember one time you were like, Yeah, I'm gonna there's a musical on a ship and it's not working and I need to go be go on the it. ship for the for a week and fix it. Um I'm going to Europe tomorrow, so guys. You 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 have to live like with a a looseness, but that's not a detachment or a not you're in the game. You've just embraced the full paradox of I hold this loosely and I'm totally in it. Exactly. Both at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Everybody has to. It's just yours is so glaringly apparent. Yeah, and it, it has been such a gift for me in my life um, because of how it allows me to be with life as like, there's a writer named Tasha Silver who I love who says like, you know, hold everything with an open hand. Yes. So when that occurred in your life and this whole new world of podcasting <laughs> <laughs> emerged. Yeah. Talking alone into a microphone in my house. It's just the weirdest thing ever. I was like, this is the, what? <laughs> what are we doing? What was the learning curve on that for you? <laughs> so weird. I literally like had like this microphone in, into a laptop in this desk in the house. And I would just, there was no audience. I would just be giving like a talk, sermon, message, something. But I'm just, ta- who am I talking to? I'm talking into this thing and it's going to go around the world. It just was, Yeah. Oh yeah, it's like a, it's a new. It's like you have to respect the medium. So anytime you move into a new medium, even if you had done whatever medium forever, every medium has its own uh, strangeness and strengths and weaknesses. And so you you go in with all right. Some things that I've done before will translate. Some things I'll be discovering. I noticed right away that. There's a certain intimacy to it. Even you and I at your table talking here, there's no production. We're talking. We're having a conversation that's pretty much the conversation we'd be having anyway. Mm-hmm. It's bits and pieces of previous conversations. So that's a rare medium. It hasn't been edited. There's no graphics. There's no music behind us. You know what I mean? So that's like a, 
And that works because you and I are talking exactly as we would talk. That's like its strengths in some ways are its lack of editing and production. And that took me a bit to realize um, if it feels like I'm performing, it loses its thing. But like if you're on stage, I'm on stage and there's like a thousand people there and I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm going to say next. I'll just kind of think about it in the moment. That doesn't really work. Um, that's not honoring people and their time well. Uh, it, people need, uh, how do I say it? It's very important that you love people enough and honor them enough that you've put something into this so that you're actually giving them something. Yeah. So there's like a number of things with the, I noticed right away with the podcast that when like my kids would interrupt me and because they needed the car keys or they needed help, that I would just leave that in and the number of people who loved that. It's like, oh, this is a different, oh, it's interesting. The things that you would instinctively be like, well, let's take all that out so it's nice and clean, don't work. There's an intimacy there. They get in the way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's many times I've been on a hike and like listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I feel like you're talking straight to me. And I can just imagine all the people around the world that must have that same feeling. Oh, isn't that, what a gift. That's just extraordinary to be able to be a part of something like that. Yeah. yeah and I do. This is what I would say if we were just chat. Like, this is what I would want to talk about. This is what I'd want to tell you. It really is. Like, there's, <laughs> it really is what it appears to be. I have one other thing that I want to talk Let's about. Let's wrap it a, up with this. With I can't a wait. burning desire. Okay. So I was listening to your podcast on reading, right? The one about your books, <laughs> and you're reading your books out loud. And you said... I know. What's the premise? <laughs> me reading my books out loud. It's, I was like, Kristen, this is the most ridiculous premise ever. I look like a... This is just a bad look. And she's like, no, it's great. It's interesting. It's great. Well, what struck <laughs> me was when you said the first book you wrote, Velvet Elvis, the first year of it was mostly 90% I think you said oh, yeah. about uh, talking to the fear voice in your head that was saying is am I a this writer? book am, am I a writer? writer type a couple of words am I a writer type a couple more words is this any good yeah, yeah. oh yeah the amount of energy that was spent wondering whether I should be doing this. And I think I spend most of my time with people, especially when I'm working as a story doctor, is letting people know that that voice is universal. And it comes up anytime they want to write yeah. something true. Anytime they want to reveal part of themselves. Oh, interesting. That voice is loud and it's there and it's present. And how you write it is by not listening to it. So Correct. I was curious yeah. how you deal with your uh, inner critic. How did you learn how to... Uh, um, that I um, all the things that could go wrong did there's mm. protesters out front these people made a, think I'm the worst thing ever these people have all boycotted these this place won't sell my books it's like all the things that like oh maybe people like people didn't <laughs> people mocked me People made little memes on YouTube, like people wanted, uh, you know what I mean? So like all of the, well, maybe you'll get some critics. I did. So I was given the gift of people really, really, really not liking what I was doing. This started in my early 30s. I told you this, right? I did yeah. some sermons about women's empowerment, women being free to be, and a bunch of religious people had a really, really hard time with the the obvious truth that women should be free to be whatever they're here to be. Like, there shouldn't be rules about women who can't do it. Especially in that case, it was in a religious church setting. Wow. But um, people organized to have me removed from the church that wow. I had started. So early on in my early 30s, I uh, encountered massive backlash to what I was doing. So I was given a gift. It was a gift. It's still a gift. So the idea of like, well, what if they like it or not? What are you going to say about me? Seriously. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. We already, that was a decade ago. So I, now, literally now, I just make it. Yes. I just go for it. I just go for it. And if somebody has a problem with it, I don't care because I'm having too much fun. The critics have given you <laughs> courage. It was a gift. It was a hot fire. It was a very, very, very painful, hot fire is the best way to describe it because all you have is images at this point. Metaphors. How long did it take? Analogies. How long did it take you to see it as a gift? Um, 
it had been about 10 years, and it seemed to reach a peak with my book, Love Wins. And I think there was a year after that, we had moved to California. Yeah, I kind of like just went off the grid. I did. And I realize now that I was sort of... Chris, at the time, Chris and I probably said, I got to reinvent the whole thing. But that was a larger um, life. That chapter's over. And the only way to do a new chapter is you have to end a chapter. And then you're just sort of floating. So that first year in California, we'd go to a party and somebody asked me what I did for a living. And I would, I'm a uh, consultant. I would just pick whatever I wanted to be for that party. One guy told me after a year, he's like, oh, I thought you were retired. Um, Kristen, I literally just... We moved to this small beach town in California and was completely anonymous. It was the best thing ever to do. I went from a town where everywhere you go, you're recognized to being totally anonymous and not knowing what to call yourself. And I was trying to write a book, which became what we talk about when we talk about God. And it was very frustrating. So I was just working each day on this book, frustrated, not knowing what to even call myself anonymous on the heels of massive exposure and it was the most exhilarating liberating thing ever Kristen and I would talk like we can go anywhere we can cook it all up again Mm. so somewhere in there joy yeah like it was like a constant companion what's left to do but just to go for it it's like when you let go mm-hmm. of your identity, all of a sudden joy emerges. Yeah, yeah. And, and joy, um, I, yeah, so that's why I went, so when people say, I get it when people are like, I don't know what people are going to think if I make this. I get what they're naming. And come on. Could be the best thing that's ever come happened on. to you. Come on. I also have to ask <laughs> you real quick. I also have to ask you about the importance of play. Because I feel yeah, like the, the last couple of conversations you and I have had, play keeps coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can move, if you can move from the heaviness of life, if you can move from the white knuckled clutching, if you can move from that need to bring decisive judgment to all of the consequences of your actions. Do they like me? Do they not? Was that successful? Was it not? Am I winning? Am I losing? Was that a smart move or not? If you can just move to, <sighs> I'm loved. The gospel announcement. You're loved exactly as you are. You always have been. There's nothing you can earn about this love. And there's nothing you can do to unearn. Your good and your bad aren't what got you this love. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is like old-fashioned Jesus gospel. Your goodness didn't get you in. And your badness isn't getting you out. You've been a child the whole time. And that mother, that father, how can they forget you? You belong. So pick your metaphor. You know what I mean? Uh You're part of the family. You're a child. You're one of the tribe. Whatever language you want. But that's that gospel truth um, is that is the mojo. So all of the things that we're constantly doing to try and, am I good enough? Am I right enough? Am I in enough? Am I impressive enough? If you die to all that, then you're left with, well, then what do we want to do here? Who do we want to help? I actually think this is why people still wear crosses. So you think about like Christians or Christianity, that's got some serious branding issues, let's be honest. For a lot of people, that's like, just don't get me anywhere near that. And yet the cross endures as an icon across all people and backgrounds and traditions and ethnicities. And I I would argue because at some level of cultural consciousness, people can feel that this icon and that story is about dying to all the things you actually want to die to so you can really live. You've been trying to impress this authority figure, relative, boss, You've been trying to earn something by performing for these people. And if you could die to all that, then you could really rise. Then you can really <laughs> rise. Yeah. I, Death I, and rebirth, Friday, Sunday. There's a reason why some of these stories, this story has, in spite of all the ways it's been polluted and blasphemed and dragged through the, 
uh, there's a reason why it resonates like it does, because you do. You want to, there's a bunch of things you want to die to, and then the person that's born on the other side, that's living. You know what I mean? Yes. You don't want to be better. That's not going to fix things. You want to die. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's nice to improve, and it's nice to learn some new techniques. That's wonderful. But dying and rebirthing? <sighs> <laughs> and it happens all the time. And it's so exciting when it happens to yes, us. Yes, yes. And when we have freedom in that death and that letting go so that we can really, truly yes. play and express ourselves, I always think the universe loves us so much, all it wants us to do is play. Right. And so we can drop those right. heavy things of responsibility and obligation, all those things that we think Ugh. we have to do in Ugh. order to be loved or be successful. Or, like we can just I'm put them down. I'm tired already. I know. And like the endless energy energy that comes yeah. from getting to really know yeah. you get to play in the world. Yes. You get to play at your work. You get to play in your relationships. It's all just playing. Blessed is the one who's in on the joke. Right. We're playing in form. <laughs> That's what we're doing. And I, I also wonder, like, if someone would have told me this at the beginning, and then I think, I don't know. I think certain things, like, certain things are maybe sec certain things are true but it's in the second half of life it's later in the road that you begin to realize how true they are because if you would have talked to younger me I mean yeah. like oh yeah when you're whatever 48 you're going to be having so much fun you're not even going to see it as walking out on stage and how did you do for these people you're even going to see it completely differently we're all going to, you're going to see yourself as them. We're all going to have an experience. We're all going to witness something together. Even if just the basics, you would have described how I see it now. I would have been like, what? Yes. No way. And then it gets, <laughs> as you said, it gets lighter. It gets more fun. There's an easier touch on it all. Oh, yeah. I would have just been floored. I just would have been, what? That is amazing. <laughs> this was good. Yes. This was good. Um. Interview, dual interviews. Dual interviews, back yeah. and forth. Mm -hmm. Rob Bell and I Christine Hengi. I think I got all my questions for this round out. Um, I love talking to you. You're just a fantastic person. Chris and I just see, you're like our sister. We just, just love you to pieces. That's what I feel in my heart. <laughs> oh, Ladies and gentlemen, coming to you from Kristen Hengi's apartment in New York City, this has been a joint Robcast and Create podcast the first ever dual podcast in the world and it's been so much fun and we hope that you felt some of our love and joy and that something that went on here speaks to you wherever you're at doing whatever it is that you're doing so much love sending all of the playful spirit to wherever you are that it may uh live through you and that you may enjoy this dance that we are all doing together. Grace and peace, everyone. <laughs>